Good morning and Happy New Year. Uh, with uh, New Year, we are actually going to be picking up uh, in our series that we started before our Advent series. So it's been a little bit, um, but we're picking up in our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Um, Jesus, if you'll remember, if you can think back before Christmas, before the holidays, uh, Jesus had just healed a paralytic man who was lowered through the roof. If you remember that story? If you weren't here, you might have read that story before. And Jesus forgave this man and then healed him. Um, and one of the rhythms in the Gospel of Mark that we have seen throughout is after a, 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 a healing event or after a miraculous event in the town, Jesus will often go off into the desolate place. He'll go off to the wilderness um, crowds will follow him out there, but he'll go off into these places. And so it is here after this uh, healing of the paralytic man who came down through the roof. Jesus, we're told at the beginning of our text, that he went out by the sea. That is, he went out by the sea of Galilee. Um, and out by the sea on the edge of the region of Galilee, there was a road that was used by travelers coming and going from Israel. It was a, it was a thoroughfare, if you will. And out there by the sea on that thoroughfare was a toll booth. We all know what a toll booth is. Uh, Well, before cars, there were toll booths. And here was one. And sitting at that toll booth was a Jewish man collecting taxes, tolls, whose name was Levi. So with that little introduction, as we're sitting there by the lake, by the Sea of Galilee with Levi... Let's turn to the text and meet this tax collector. The text can be found in your bulletins or you can follow along in your Bibles. It's Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Mark 2, 13 to 17. He went out again, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, that is, as Matthew reclined at table in his house, or Jesus reclined in Matthew's house, we're uncertain, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who calls sinners. Uh, Lord, we ask that we would hear the call and follow him. Uh, Help us to understand your text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a lovely little restaurant in Rockland, Maine, which is also by the sea, (laughs) different sea, that Aaron and I would occasionally visit for special occasions when we used to live there. We lived there for a time. Um, It offers fine wines and a small menu of wonderfully cooked meals and an intimate atmosphere. And the name of the restaurant is In Good Company. 
And uh, it's a clever name for a restaurant as it invokes that feeling you get when you are surrounded by a few close friends or family while eating a lovely meal. And this little restaurant delivers that in spades. It's that feeling you get. But this sermon, on the other hand, maybe it should be entitled In Bad Company. For it is an account of Jesus involving himself with and eating with the dregs of Jewish society. Going out by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus Jesus was not entering a lovely place full of good company. He was going out to meet desperate sinners. But really, isn't this the whole story of Jesus? The Son of God coming into this world and becoming like us in every way, yet without sin, that he might save us and have fellowship with us, those who have sinned, who are sinners. And this morning, our sermon is an invitation to you. It is an invitation to come and to follow Jesus and to feast with him. As the old hymn writer enjoined, Come ye sinners, Poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, waits to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is willing. Doubt no more. Jesus invites you to come and to follow and to feast with him. And we'll keep this very simple in terms of the structure of the the sermon uh, though I find that when I do this, it becomes less simple. But anyway, this is the, the simple structure split into just two parts. Jesus calls you to follow him, and Jesus invites you to feast with him. That's it. Those two things. Jesus calls you to follow him, and Jesus invites you to feast with him. So first, Jesus calls you to follow him. Jesus calls sinners seems obvious. That's what he does. That's who he is. But here we see it. Jesus left town and headed out by the Sea of Galilee, the same place where he had called the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Yet this story is a little different. Peter, Andrew, James and John, they were fishermen. Uh, They were, well, maybe not the religious elite. They were certainly productive members of Jewish society, providing food Uh, For the community. But not so with Levi, son of Alphaeus, or his other name, Matthew, as he is identified in his own gospel account, in the Gospel of Matthew. Mark doesn't give us a lot of Levi's history. He mentions his father's name, but that's about it. But we do know about his occupation. He was a tax collector. Now, (laughs) no one loves tax collection. I mean, that's just, maybe, maybe there's some of you out here, they're just so broad-minded, you love to give your money to the government that they might use it well. That's good, it's a noble thing. But most of us, the majority of us, I would say probably, don't love to give taxes. It's not something we enjoy. But it was a bit different for the Jews than it was for us. First of all, there's a question, who of us actually knows a tax collector. 
Some of you may know your municipal tax collector. That's possible. You go into the office and you might know them or it's a small town. But mostly we just send in a check or we pay it online or we go through a tax service. We never really engage with a person. But secondly, and I would argue more significantly, a tax collector in the first century in Israel is someone who was working for Rome. He was a tax collector working under um, what was called a publican. A publican would have been a Roman citizen, and they had what I would call minions under them uh, who would go out and actually collect the, ta- the taxes uh, from the people. They were Jewish. Um, and so this was extracting money from the Israelites, the Jews, in order to give it to the oppressive Roman regime. And on top of that, these tax collectors earned their wage by taking exorbitant fees on top. And the more fees they took, the more money they got. And I'm not sure that the Roman authorities really cared how much they charged for the service. And of course, these tax collectors had the authority of Rome and the power of Rome to extract the tax. And so you can imagine how these people were received in their community. The Babylonian Talmud lists tax collectors with murderers and robbers. That's it. In fact, it says in the Talmud that, and and I went back and I read to verify, I looked it up and I realized I had to go back to the source and I wanted to see this for myself and it does say those things. In fact, it says that you should never exchange a larger denomination for a smaller denomination. You know how you might go into a bank and say, I have a hundred, can you give me change? I'd like it all in ones or however you want it. Well, that was the case maybe with a tax collector. You could go up to a tax collector and say, I have this larger denomination and I'd like change for a smaller denomination. But the, the Jewish religious authorities said you should never do that. Why? Well, because much of that money was stolen. That's the words the Talmud used. And in other words, that money is dirty money. Literally, it was unclean, and you shouldn't go and even exchange one coin for another coin. Don't even touch it. You become unclean. One commentator noted this. He said, when a Jew entered the custom service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified to be a judge or to be a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, he was a disgrace to himself and to his family. Persona non grata. Utterly despised. So it makes you wonder just a little bit, why did Matthew ever decide, or any Jewish person ever decide to become a a tax collector in the first place? Well, that's that's a really simple answer, isn't it? Money. Money. It's lucrative. You can set your own fee. You can have power and control. You, you have Rome at your beck and call. You, you can grow in wealth. And here's the thing with sin. And love of money is one sin. But this is the thing with sin. There's often a very 
tangible and immediate benefit to sin that blinds us to its consequences, right? There were lots of consequences for becoming a tax collector. He was basically ostracized from his community, and yet the tangible reality of having the money in hand and to be able to have nice things outweighed those consequences. And here's the other really disturbing thing about sin. Even when we see the consequences, at least in part, when we recognize that there's negative consequences to sin, we still choose it. Isn't that the way with sin? We see it. We know it. We tell ourselves, what are you doing? And then we do it. Levi loved money. He loved it more than being well-received by his friends or family or the people in his community. There's something else about sin and sinners. <laughs> we tend to flock to our own type. I guess this is with most, most things, right? What I mean is that we generally are okay with sinners of our own stripe while we despise sins of other stripes. Uh, we aren't told much about Levi or his friends who come to the feast later on in the text other than that they were tax collectors and sinners. And just as an aside, the term sinners here isn't just sort of generally general they were sinners, but it's actually a technical term that's being used here. They were a class of people. Uh, it, was a, it was a term that actually had a, a, another term that kind of co- coexisted with this term sinners um, that's called uh, the Am Haaretz, that's a Hebrew term that was taken from the Old Testament, which just simply means the people of the land. Ha'am Haaretz, people of the land. But when it was used, particularly by religious leaders, when they used the term sinners, particular group of people, class of people, or people of the land, it was a derogatory term to refer to a class of unclean, Ignorant Jews who didn't follow the Jewish laws and traditions, particularly the traditions of the Pharisees with regard to being ceremonially clean, not engaging with uh, uh, unclean Gentiles, etc. These sinners or these people of the land, they were outcasts like the tax collectors. So going back to my initial picture of in good company and not in good company. These, these were not good company. Tax collectors and sinners. And I think there's a question we ought to ask ourselves as we think about these outcasts in society, these not good company. Are there classes of persons, of sinners, in our mind that are not worthy of our company? Are there people that we would say, listen, these kind of sinners over here are fine, but these sinners over here are not fine. We don't associate with those. Do we have categories like that in our mind? And I think we ought to be cautious because this is exactly what the Jewish religious leaders did. They said there are classes of sinners that you do not associate with. Well, these sinners and tax collectors found company with each other. They could relate and commiserate. But there's another group of sinners in our text, despite their, their, their protest to the contrary, 
There is another group of sinners. The religious leaders were also sinners. They were scrupulous about being ceremonially clean, about following the letters of the law. But we know from the rest of Scripture and from the rest of the New Testament that while they did these outward signs of of religiosity and religion, Jesus called them other things like whitewashed tombs. Hypocrite, sons of the devil, brood of vipers, and a host of other things. They were sinners. Maybe a more respectable brand of sinner in the society, but they were sinners nonetheless. And both of these groups despised each other. And isn't that the way of it? We're okay with our own sin patterns. We made peace with them. We're okay with the sin patterns of others that we can relate to or that we understand. But when there is a sin that we don't understand, we tend to label it differently. It sits in a different category. So there's some similarities between these two groups of sinners in that they're both sinners. But there's also some stark differences. The first group, the tax collectors and the sinners, or the people of the land, had no pretense of not being a sinner. They didn't act as if they were part of upstanding society. They knew that they were sinners. They owned it. They understood that they were bad company. They, they, they were regularly reminded of that as people walked away from them in, in society. But the second group, the religious leaders, had all sorts of pretense. And they thought of themselves in ways that they did not recognize their sinfulness. They denied it. In their minds, they are good company. And where does Jesus go? Does he go to the good company? I mean, he does actually appoint and he addresses them. He'll go into the synagogues. But in our text here, he goes to the bad company. He goes to those who know their sin, who understand it, at least in part. He goes to Levi's toll booth, even as he is being watched by the Pharisees and scrutinized by the crowds. And you can only imagine what they were expecting, right? As Jesus walked up to the toll booth, they probably were watching with anticipation. What's he going to do with old Levi? Can you believe that, Levi? Such a scoundrel. What's he going to do? Maybe they expected him to turn over the money booth. It's irony there, right? Maybe they expected him to condemn Levi. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes up to the booth and he says, Follow me. Follow me. It's amazing. The text is so brief and so to the point, it's hard to imagine the scene. Here's Levi at the booth, and as the people come and go along the way, he's taking their money and filling up his purse, and then all of a sudden, this crazy preacher who had been healing the sick and causing the lame to walk, who had been proclaiming good news, who had been teaching with authority in the synagogues, walks up to him and says just two words. Follow me. And now, we've already noted this in the Gospel of Mark. 
Mark is a very pithy writer. He's very short and to the point. He's concise. But if we go and look at the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and we examine the same account, it's just as concise. And this is particularly noteworthy when it comes to Matthew's own account of the situation. You would think that if there was other conversation going on, Matthew would have retold it. He would have said, Jesus had this conversation with me and I responded this way and he responded this way. But no, if we go to the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded just the same. Jesus comes and he says, follow me. And the tax collector doesn't hem or haw. He doesn't count his money first. He doesn't say anything according to any of the texts. Matthew, in his own account, says, And he immediately got up and followed him. How is this possible? Friends, Levi, Matthew, he knew his sin. He felt the weight of it. And I know some of you are out there like me. You know it. You don't have to imagine how Matthew felt at that moment to feel stuck in sin. Like like giving up that sin will, will tear you apart. You've been there. As though if you, if you lose this part of you, you will lose your life. Sin feels like an iron grip around us, doesn't it? Like a deadly malignancy, it ravages us and seeks to destroy us. And we often feel helpless, don't we? But Jesus comes to sinners. He comes to set us free. And he offers the same thing to you as he, that he offered to Levi. He says, follow me. It's hard to imagine the impossibility of such a request for Levi, whose whole life was wrapped up in this pursuit of money. What? What would I do? Where would I go? How would I earn money? How would I survive? This is all I know for myself. How will I provide? If I give this up, what do I have? Where's my identity? But embedded in Jesus' call to follow him are promises that are too overwhelming for us to even comprehend. Embedded in this call to follow him is a promise of forgiveness. A promise of fellowship and friendship with God and with one another. And a promise of a life that is free from the power and terror and reign of sin in our lives. Now, I just want you to, I want to ask this question. Did you, did you see it? Did you see what happened in that moment in a flash? It's only a little short verse here. You might have missed it. Did you see it? Levi follows. This is the most spectacular thing. Levi gets up immediately. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says immediately, follows. This is as spectacular as when that man was lowered down as a lame man and was laying on the mat and Jesus heals him and says, take up your mat and walk. This is just as spectacular. Levi follows 
Not because of any ability in himself, but because of the power of Christ at work in his heart. Friends, it is an impossible thing to follow Jesus. Save the fact that he gives us the grace and power to turn from our sin and to repent and to believe. That's it. Jesus comes to bad company, to those who know their brokenness and sin, and he comes to heal them and to set them free to walk in newness of life. Friend, if, you, if you're stuck in your sin, if you, you say, there's nothing, it's crushing me. I've lived so long this way, I don't know how to get rid of it. And you can't imagine a life free from it. Jesus has come to you to offer you freedom and forgiveness to follow him. And how do, how do you do that? You drop everything. You don't delay. You don't try to get your life in order and try to make everything right and wash yourself and scrub yourself. No, you you turn from that sin and you cast yourself on Jesus. He is able to forgive you your sin and to sustain you. And he promises to give you fellowship and life. Believer, believer, you may know the gospel and you've heard it and you put your trust in Jesus, but you are stuck in that sin and you feel as though there is nothing greater than its reign over your life right now. That indwelling sin that continues to eat at you, believer, remember. As John says in his letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And a little later in the letter, that even when our hearts condemn us, he is greater than our hearts. Do you believe that? Apostle Peter says in his second letter that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus. Follow him. This brings me to my final point and conclusion. Jesus invites you to feast with him. The next scene in the text is that of Jesus eating with Levi, with his other disciples, and a large crowd of sinners and tax collectors. Presumably, Levi threw a party in celebration of his newfound faith and in friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just Levi who followed Jesus that day. The text says that many of the dregs of society also followed him. And so what did they do? Well, the riffraff party. There's nothing like a good party of riffraffs. And it was a scandalous thing. It was a scandalous thing. It was scandalous because Jesus was seen as the one who taught with authority. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the law. And at the core of the Pharisees' ideal of what it meant to be a teacher of the law was one who was upright and holy, who was set apart from the world, who was ceremonially clean, who didn't engage with sinners and tax collectors. And here, Jesus is eating 
like the worst case scenario, touching vessels that other sinners had touched. For Jesus to go and purposefully defile himself among the tax collectors and the people of the land, the ignorant sinners, was unfathomable to the religious leaders. In fact, it was too much for them. And so they just, they, they were fed up. They had watched everything unfold. They had heard the stories. And so they went to, not Jesus, but to the disciples. You know, come here, Peter, I need to talk to you a minute. Peter, you're a reasonable bloke. You're a zealot. You would understand these things. Come talk to us. Why is he eating with bad company? Jesus and his classic rabbinic style. After all, he, though he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they didn't disqualify him from his role as a teacher, as a rabbi. And in that classic rabbinic style, he answered their question with a proverbial statement. It was, uh, it was very uh, much in line with how they, would have, uh, how they would have debated things and theological ideas. And it was a proverb with which they could dis- that they wouldn't disagree with. It was something that they would all have uh, understood and, and agreed with. He confounds them by stating the obvious truth. It's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. But then Jesus goes on and he explains the proverb a little more. And in doing so, uh, in a twist, he condemns the Pharisees. He, He uses a bit of irony. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but to sin. Now, how would the the scribes and Pharisees have heard his little little proverbial statement and his explanation? Well, in in a couple ways. They might have said, okay, so he's doing this like a a prophet of old to come and call uh, sinners to repentance. Maybe they still disagreed with him. But they would have understood the second half. Well, we are the righteous and we don't need saving. That's how they would have understood it. At least some of them. But Jesus is using righteous in that ironic way. He's saying those who are righteous in their own eyes. But there's something else here. I think Jesus is giving them the same call. Follow me. He's saying to the Pharisees in a way that they might hear it, that they might understand, for them to come and follow him. He's saying, do you see yourself as a sinner fundamentally? In need of sin. Now, Jesus goes to the sinners, right? And... uh, great sermon on the mount Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the question is for you and I do you see yourself for who you are I quoted from a hymn in my introduction come ye sinners poor and wretched It was written by a man in England in the 16th century by the name of Joseph Hart. Joseph, in his early life, tried hard to be a good Christian. He would have fit well with the Pharisees. He grew up in a Christian home. He had a little period of rebellion, but then he said, well, I'll just be good. And he polished himself up. He became self-righteous. 
He was full of pride. These are his own sort of ruminations and looking back on his young self. And he went through that. I'm a good person. Got married. Took a bride and then decided it was all hooey. I'm going to live how I want to live. Self-described himself as a libertine. Went and lived however he wanted to. In fact, he wrote against John Wesley uh, in this, uh, in this uh, little essay titled The Unreasonableness of Religion. So he kind of went full, full bore the other way. He went from being a self-righteous condemner of those who don't do good to a libertine who does whatever they want. A sinner, if you will. That was until one day he was listening to the great preacher Whitfield. And he was drawn to the picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before the night of his death, prostrate before the Lord, crying out the, the night before he was crucified. And he was overcome by his sin. He later went on to write this, this he wrote this hymn that I mentioned, but Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. But he also wrote this little line, and I think it's helpful. Little line. Because on one hand, you have those who live life how they want to live it. Antinomian, libertine, sinner, tax collector. Put in whatever category you want. And on the other side, you have these religious Leaders, these self-righteous, self-important people on one hand. And he says, Pharisaic zeal and antinomian security are two engines. This is, of course, written in the 16th century, so mind the language. Are two engines of Satan with which he grinds the church in all ages as between the upper and the lower millstone. But the space between them is much narrower and harder to find than most men imagine. It is the path path which the vulture's eye has not seen, and none can show it to us but the Holy Ghost. And what he's getting at is that path, that place, is the place of, I'm a sinner, but I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin and repentance and walk in faith. You see that with Levi. We see that with his friends, the tax collectors and sinners. But here's the most spectacular thing of all. It's not all that noticeable in the text, but they sit down for a meal. They have this party. And in this party, it's interesting. It's at Matthew's house, presumably. But Matthew's name isn't mentioned. Who is the host? Look at the text. And as he reclined a table in his house, it's very, Mark is really particular. He doesn't mention Levi's name. He says, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. Who's the host? Who's, who's the, the person of honor at this table? Who's the one with whom everyone wants to eat and sit at the table Jesus, Jesus comes and he calls them to himself and he offers them forgiveness and he says, come follow me. And this meal that they have is just a foretaste of the meal 
that the Lord of glory is preparing for us. He's saying, I've come. I've come to take you. I've come to take you to the table of the Lamb. We read that in our text earlier. The Supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, you're all invited. Follow Jesus. Repent and trust in Him. And that will be a party like no other. When we are gathered around the throne, sinners who have been redeemed, who have been washed, who have been given the robes of righteousness, who have been forgiven. Friends, get up out of the tax booth and run to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Recognize that we 